VVF Adria predstavlja Podcast Divljina Zločini protiv divljih vrsta Zdravo ljudi dragi, slušajte desetu epizodu podcasta Divljina kojom zapravo i završavamo ovaj VVF-ov serijal u kom smo pričali o zločinima protiv divljih vrsta Do sada, u prethodnih dakle, devet epizoda, smo se bavili zločinima u regionu, a u ovoj epizodi ćemo govoriti o globalnoj situaciji i suštinski o stanju planete kada je u pitanju očuvanje biodiverziteta. Prema VVF-ovom izveštaju iz 2022. godine, globalna populacija divljih životinja je u proseku opala za 69% u odnosu na periodi od 1970. dakle za nekih 50 godina. Ova zapanjujuća stopa opadanja je ozbiljno upozorenje da je sav život na našoj planeti, uključujući i nas same, dakle ugrožen. I zato danas i posvećujemo ovu emisiju o posladicama zločina protiv divljih vrsta po biodiverzitet i koje mere se preduzimaju i koje mere bi trebalo da se preduzmu da pomenute negativne brojke ne budu ovoliko velike. U skladu sa temom današnjih gosti iz internacionalnog VVF-a u pitanju je dr. Coleman od Cryodane, direktor za javne politike programa za zaštitu divljih vrsta VVF International, Danas ćemo razgovarati sa njim o očuvanju biodiverziteta iz šire globalne perspektive kao i iz perspektive rada VVF-a po ovim pitanjima. Osnovite uz nas. Well, first of all, Mr. Cryodane, thank you for joining our podcast. Mm-hmm. It's really lovely that you had some time to, you know, to talk with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so the first question for you is, can you explain the significance of biodiversity and why is it crucial for the overall health and sustainability of our planet? I remember once reading an article, how would you explain it to your taxi driver? (laughs) And um, the answer was, well, if you're a taxi driver and you're short of money, you don't sell the steering wheel of your car and the starter motor and the wing mirror and so on, because you'll be even shorter of money if you do that. And this is really the problem that um, we talk about uh, how much it's going to cost to conserve biodiversity. But basically, we're um, we're digging into the family savings by wasting it and by losing it. And we won't get that back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what are the primary threats to biodiversity and wildlife populations? The the biggest threat of all is habitat loss or habitat degradation Um, and habitat fragmentation as well, so that even when you have intact areas, animals can't move between them or they don't have enough territory to do whatever it is they have to do. Predators, for instance, for obvious reasons, need a lot of territory. Um, The other big threats, the second threat is uh, overharvest, whether it's for international trade and usually the worst forms of overharvest arise in a situation where there is demand in international trade uh, and then also invasive alien species. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what about wildlife crimes? So wildlife crime is uh, basically illegal harvest and illegal uh-huh. trade. Now it's worth saying that um, a lot of harvest and trade that's harmful isn't actually illegal technically because yeah. the laws aren't strong enough. But where it's in clear contravention of laws, um, it, that's obviously uh, a serious situation and that always happens in the context of overexploitation um there's no once they're actually doing this illegally there's there's nothing to stop them completely uh, wiping out the resource if they have the means to do it 
And there's also, um, it, it's one of the issues with uh, animal and uh, human health as well, because say, for instance, the hunting wild meat or other perishable products or products that can carry uh, pathogens, uh, there's no oversight, there's no um, uh, animal hygiene or veterinary inspections or anything. So there's obviously a risk there as well. So basically, uh, wildlife crime is the sharp end of overexploitation, so to speak. And how does the loss of biodiversity impact local communities? And are people actually aware of the impact of the biodiversity loss to their lives? Oh, they certainly are. Now, to, to be fair, sometimes they're under pressure. Um, but I can give an example um, from my own personal experience. I come from Ireland and it's well known. And this example actually has been quoted um, in international papers and so on. Uh when you, you uh, there used to be a bask a basking shark fishery in County Mayo in the west of Ireland, and I remember once even being in the nearest railway station to where it was located, and there were lots of photographs. It, there were there were sheds and factories and processing plants. They were catching the fish for its liver oil at the time, big barrels of liver oil, quite a, an operation. You go to that part of the world now, the place is called Ackle Island, and there is nothing, there is no sign of this. Because basically, basking shark, like most sharks, are very vulnerable to overfishing. It was a boom, and it was a bust, and now there's nothing. So, and that's in a European country. So you can imagine the kind of things that happen uh, in uh, developing countries where there are less alternative income sources. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how do people feel uh, about that? Uh, I think they often regret it after it happens. Uh -huh. As I say, sometimes, you know, they are under uh, short-term pressure, That, but in the long term, uh, I mean, it's happened in so many places, and overfishing is really a classic example of it. Also, illegal logging and deforestation, it leads to more flooding, more soil erosion, and so on. Um, and uh, as he, it's just part of human nature that we don't realize till we, what we've done until it's too late. Uh, we mentioned the impact of wild, wildlife crime um, to the decline in biodiversity, but can you provide some specific examples? Um, well, there are many examples. So, for instance, I, I think of Madagascar and the illegal logging of precious timbers. And um, that this is in a World Heritage Site, so a site that should be getting the maximum level of protection. It has also uh, created a situation where the illegal loggers are um, poaching lemurs. There's a, sp a specific species of lemur that's associated with this habitat. You don't get it elsewhere. It's called the silky sifaka. It's a beautiful creature. They're poaching these for food. Uh -huh. um, there are a lot of social ills associated with this, increases in um, uh, crimes associated with drunkenness, violence, sexual violence, um, uh, and so on, uh, more prostitution, and all of these kind of things. So it's um, it's basically a, a disaster area. And this, unfortunately, um, is an organized operation with uh, the sanction of people quite high up in the Malagasy authorities. So... Um, yeah, it really is uh, a shocking situation. And you come across examples of this um, in many parts of the world. And what are some lesser known or, or surprising aspects of biodiversity loss that general public may not be aware of? 
something that's not in the media so much. Well, well I, I put it this way. I think um, if for for somebody who's been to a zoo and, you know, if you ask somebody what, what animals do you see in a zoo, the, you, they'll say chimpanzees, elephants, tigers, lions, etc. Nearly all of the animals that they will name off the top of their head Uh, are in trouble, and they are in trouble for several reasons. It might be human-wildlife conflict, it might be habitat loss, but in all cases, all of the ones I've mentioned and many more besides, they're in trouble because of wildlife crime, specifically uh, not just unsustainable but illegal uh, mm. take and trade. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, that should really bring it home that, you know, if, if we go on like this um, in a few years for some of these species, the zoo will be the only place you're able to see them. And if they're yeah. not easy to breed in a zoo, then eventually we won't be able to see them at all. Yeah, that's so sad. Um, how prevalent is wildlife crime? <clears throat> sorry, on a global scale, we, you mentioned Madagascar, um, and um, which species are particularly vulnerable? All of them. <laughs> well, the, prevel the prevalence, I mean, it occurs in all parts of the world, even in Europe and North America, but obviously it's more pre prevalent in the global south, as are many other types of crime. Um, I, I, you know, in, in southern and developing countries, what we must understand is that there's a much lower ratio, of, for instance, of police and other enforcement authorities to civilians. So uh, you're talking about areas with weaker governance, with um, um, higher levels of corruption and so on. There is a figure, it's been going around for quite a while, an estimate that it's of the order of 20 billion a year. It's very difficult to um, make that more precise, but it does give um, uh, an idea of basically the, the order of magnitude involved. As to what species are involved, Uh, there are so many and for so many different uses. There are many that are yeah, used in medicine that are overexploited. And that's not just things like rhino horn or pangolins. It applies to pl some plant species as well. Um, elephants, of course, for their ivory. Tigers for many of their body parts for their skins. Precious timbers. Um, aromatic plants like agar wood in Southeast Asia, which is, um, you know, the, the wood chips weight for weight are more valuable than heroin. Um, many, many fish species. Uh, you go across the whole range of animals and plants and you'll find examples um, right across the board. And uh, of course, the pet trade is another one, a huge driver of decline, especially for endemic species. So, um, yeah, really, we hear a lot about it in relation to a few species like elephants and rhinos and tigers, but it's, it goes right across the board, reptiles and amphibians as well. Yeah, we talked about the problems <laughs> up to this point, but can we discuss strategies or initiatives that can be implemented to combat wildlife crime? Um, I think, first of all, we need to understand the social context. If we were tackling um, drug crime in a, say, in a European city, we wouldn't just go in with all guns blazing. We have to understand the social context. We have to understand the the drivers. We would, we we might it might need a strong enforcement response, but it'll also need um, uh, a social response. And I think that's very important. And, um, you know, we, we work in a context where uh, in many of these countries, human rights abuses are prevalent. And we have to actually uh, make sure that we don't exacerbate that because otherwise we incur reputational risk, which will impair the fight against wildlife crime. And also we will lose cases when they come to court. So, um 
I think the we have some successes as well where we've put pressures on uh, governments to uh, improve enforcement. For instance, um, say about 10 years ago, um, Mombasa and uh, Zanzibar were the major exit points for ivory leave, leaving the African continent. And that has largely changed since. And, you know, at the time, like I had people saying, oh, well, if you shut down those ports, they'll just move somewhere else. And it's true that there's more ivory exiting now from from West Africa. But that's already disrupting the business model of the criminals and making it more difficult. And in practice, that's what what's really the crucial thing. It, it's like... Um, uh, you never, you'll never stop somebody from breaking into your house. What you can do is slow them down and make it harder for them to get out. And that's really what we have to, to think about, that um, prison sentences uh, don't actually work as, as deterrents, but the whole thing of... Um, May, you know, shutting down some of the, the closing some of the bottlenecks, um, pursuing criminals and catching them when you can, pursuing the illegal, the proceeds of illegal crime, which is something we're really still taking baby steps on, and trying to change consumer behavior. It's a whole package. There isn't one sing, single silver bullet, but there are many uh, aspects that working together um, can bring about a difference. But uh, as with other types of very embedded crime, it's 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 a slow process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'd say I'd conclude from your answer that collaboration is really important regarding this yes. issue. So, yeah, how can international organizations, governments, and local communities collaborate to strengthen law enforcement and reduce the demand for illegal life products? I think one of the advantages that we have as WWF, of course, um, is our local to global approach. We, we do work with local communities on the ground. We work with governments. Um, we And we, we work at the multilateral level, um, uh, changing the international laws in relation to um, wildlife crime and poaching and bringing more species into international protection. We do So we, we do work right across the board. Um, I think what we also have to do in cases where government Governments are complicit is call them out, and that's that can be sensitive. Where we have offices in countries where free speech is curtailed, but it's something that we have to try to do. And that the, basically the the cases that I mentioned about Mombasa and Zanzibar they happened because of international pressure. Another actually excellent example was that Thailand used to be the second biggest um, domestic ivory market in the world, and that has completely changed as well. And again, that was down. To international pressure. This is interesting because my next question is, can you mention some success stories? Maybe Taiwan would be a good one to, to talk about. Yes. So um, it's interesting that when we started actually looking at this, and it's it's about sort of 15 years ago now, uh, and we, we were asked to identify some quick wins. And somebody said, if we could shut down the trade in ivory from Africa to Thailand, because China was, we figured at the time, would be a tougher nut to crack. That would already make a big difference. And um, in the end, how it came about, like we were working in the country and so on, but the the game changer was the fact that the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species was threatening to impose sanctions on Thailand. And Thailand has a big trade in species that are regulated by the convention in artificially propagated orchids, in crocodile skins from captive breeding facilities and so on. So that would have been a huge economic hit to Thailand if they didn't... um, 
clean this up. And so they did actually change their laws and bring about custody, chain of custody rules and so on. And actually, the interesting thing about these laws is that they're not absolutely watertight, but they're sufficiently um, bothersome and disruptive that basically most of the main players uh, just pulled out of the trade. Before that, you could go to the Chattachuk market, the famous market in Bangkok, and you would find stalls openly selling ivory. And this was mostly African ivory. That was the problem, um, because there was an exemption, a blanket exemption for ivory from domestic Asian elephants, but in practice, um, they were using that to launder African ivory on a massive scale. And even some of the pieces, because of their size and that, you would know they couldn't have come from Asian elephants. But it, uh, these stalls are largely gone now, and it's it's simply because it's it's not um, it's not it's just not a viable proposition. It's not worth the trouble for the people. I, I hesitate to speculate about what they're doing instead, unfortunately. But uh, but that is the that's where we are now. So again, it's a it's a slow process, and it's only one piece of the jigsaw. But it's there. I I think another thing too that we've um, where we have made a difference in the range countries is that we've um, put a lot of effort into. Um, improving the welfare of wildlife rangers because often they were badly paid, they were paid late, they were, um, they're not properly equipped with clothing and boots and footwear and so on. We're, we're trying to highlight that as an issue and you know, raise the profile of ranger welfare because um, if, if, if we don't look after these people, um, we, can't, we can't expect enforcement to happen. We're also improving the protocols of wildlife patrolling, how they go about it and so on, making it more systematic. Um, it's, as I say, we, we work across a whole variety of fronts. We need community cooperation for this as well. And some communities also have their own rangers. And can we talk about some examples of successful wildlife conservation initiatives undertaken by WWF? We have, for instance, with with tigers, um, the political momentum that we built up around the tiger issue, it has certainly contributed to growing tiger numbers in uh, South Asia, in um, India and Nepal and Bhutan. Uh, we haven't been so successful in Southeast Asia. It's a more challenging environment to work. But, but certainly um, the uh, political momentum which we helped to create in 2009-2010 was a big factor in in raising the profile of of tiger poaching as an issue and the potential loss of tigers. And tiger numbers have grown since then, at least in South Asia. Um, So we can consider that a success. We also, um, I mean, when I say we, I mean the international community collectively persuaded China um, to to ban ivory trade with effect from the beginning of 2018. Uh, this was against a background where they had actually, only a few years earlier, um, invested quite a lot in setting up a legal market because of the cultural importance of ivory carving. Um, and uh, they were persuaded in the light of the illegal trade and also um, some poor management of that market once they set it up, they were persuaded to institute an ivory ban. Uh, so, um, yeah, th- there are these successes, certainly. And looking ahead, what do you see as the key challenges um, and opportunities in addressing biodiversity loss? What are some po- potential solutions and what are the challenges? I think the, the, the key challenge 
the challenges are, first of all, weak governance and lack of willingness of the international community to commit sufficient resources. Uh, if I talk about key opportunities, one of them would be the um, Global Biodiversity Framework, the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework that was adopted in, in December, which will hopefully, uh, this is something we're still arguing about, which will hopefully unlock more resources and more attention from the international community. And that includes goals and targets relating to overexploitation and wildlife crime and species conservation. Um, so, yeah, that, that would really be, those would be the first things that come to mind, basically. And my last question for you would be, um, as individuals, uh, what are some practical steps or actions, <clears throat> sorry, that we can take to contribute to the protection of wildlife? So, most of us, and I suspect most of the people that will hear this podcast aren't people who habitually use uh, pangolin scales or buy ivory or even use um, precious timbers or whatever. But I think what we do have to recognize is that the kind of consumption uh, behavior that I've just talked about is part of a wider pattern where we are basically all consuming more than the planet can produce. So we really should look at the weight of our footprint on the planet, how often we eat meat, how, um, how much avoid, we can avoid the use of fossil fuels, all of these kind of things. I would say specifically in relation to, um, to wildlife as well, one area where it is quite easy um, to to misbehave is the issue of fish consumption. And we should really look at um, where we get our fish from and, and how often, as I say, we consume that or other animal protein. I would, however, say that um, it, I get asked this question a lot and um, I have to say that there's a lot that governments can do as well to make it mm, easier for us to do the right thing. For example, it costs me more on average to travel around Europe by train than it does by plane. And that's because of um, a variety of fiscal reasons and, to, and subsidies of um, certain types of transport and so on. These are the kind of things an individual can't, can't fix. Individuals must accept some responsibility, but there is a tendency uh, in environmental issues to imply that it's solely their responsibility, and governments must take responsibility as well. If, if we see the neighbor's house on fire, we don't say, how can we put it out? We call the fire brigade. And, you know, they... There is a role for governments to play in all of this and also to help developing countries uh, to combat wildlife crime as part of a package of helping them generally to overcome social and governance problems and environmental problems. Well, thank you, Mr. Uh, Krajdine. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Hvala vam što ste bili uz nas u toku čitavog ovog WWF-ovog serijala koji se bavi jedinstvenom temom na našim prostorima, a to je zaštita divljih vrsta i priča o zločinima koji se nad njima vrše lokalno, a evo u ovoj poslednjoj epizodi pričali smo i o globalnoj situaciji. Ukoliko budete imali bilo kakvih pitanja, sugestija ili ukoliko želite da nam date feedback vezano za ovaj serijal ili bilo šta što se tiče ovih tema, slobodno kontaktirajte WWF Adriju. Hvala vam još jednom na slušanju i nastavite da se interesujete za teme zaštite životne sredine.